Welcome to Healthy Outcomes, a Baker Tilly podcast, where we'll informally discuss topics such as financial sustainability, value-based care, cybersecurity, and more. Baker Tilly is a leading advisory tax and assurance firm dedicated to helping healthcare organizations be financially sustainable. Each episode will bring you a topic or guest that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Mark Ross, and I'm the leader of Baker Tilly's Healthcare Provider Practice. Joining me for today's Healthy Outcomes podcast are three of my Baker Tilly colleagues that specialize in behavioral health, Krista Pankop, Melissa Hicks, and Mike Wascura. Krista, Melissa, and Mike recently attended NatCon 2022 in Washington, D.C. Sponsored by the National Council for Mental Wellbeing, NatCon is the largest conference in mental health and substance abuse treatment in the U.S. So on a prior Healthy Outcomes podcast episode, Krista, Melissa, and Mike talked a little bit about some of the major topics or themes that were a focus of discussion at the conference. On a prior episode, we talked a little bit about workforce issues and how pervasive workforce issues are across the behavioral health, well, quite frankly, the whole healthcare sector, but behavioral health providers are not immune to those workforce issues. We also talked about CCBHCs at length, a lot about CCBHCs, and we also talked a bit about federal funding and some of the some of the attention that the federal government is now paying to providing funding to behavioral health care providers, specifically in light of the demand, the significant demand that providers have experienced for their services during the pandemic. So on today's follow-up episode to NACCON 2022, we're going to be talking about a couple other issues. We're going to be talking about data and quality measures, you know, quality of care, you know, how providers should be understanding their data, measuring quality of care. And, and we're going to tie that back into the CCBHC business model specifically. We're also going to talk a bit about focusing on prevention, private equity investment in behavioral health, and a couple other ancillary items. But on the last episode, we again, we talked about the CCBHC model, Krista, pretty extensively. And we talked about the fact that with that model of care, there are requirements relative to quality measures, overall quality care, significant requirements that these providers must achieve. They, you know, so they have to have systems in place to measure compliance. And this is not just a CCBHC issue. Again, measuring quality of care, assessing quality of care is important to all healthcare providers uh, in today's healthcare environment. So first on CCBHCs, Chris, if we go back to that business model, what are, what are some of the challenges that CCBHCs might have in meeting the financial and clinical requirements? So I, I think if you would ask any organization to say, hey, we'd love to have you in the CCBHC model, all you got to do is tell us our, your quality metrics and, and how you're meeting them. Everyone would say, oh, that's easy. We can do that. And then when you look under the hood, there's 32 possible quality measures and they have to pick 21 of those at least to report on. And then when you start looking at its caseload demographics, the time from the first contact that someone walks in the door or gives them a call to when there's a diagnostic and treatment plan in place, you know, the time from when they walk in the door to initial evaluation, readmissions. So when you start looking at that, most organizations, unless they've already been working in a program, don't have that at their fingertips. Either they were a very heavy pay for organization, which many behavioral health entities were. Their IT systems are 
not state of the art just because we don't have the extra funding to stay up to date on IT systems and IT people are doing their best at behavioral health entities, but some of it's, you know, masking tape and shoestrings to keep everything together. So when you think about that, how can you actually get all that data through your systems? So I think many organizations when they're looking at the CCBHC model really need to figure out what are the quality measures that matter and how can they get that data? And that might be a process even before application. So Krista, a couple of things that I heard at the conference as well was some of the struggles that the CCBHCs have seen is that they do utilize other service providers to provide some of the services that are required with CCBHCs, such as they would outsource a mobile crisis team, or maybe they will outsource the regular care to an FQHC, for example. So some of their concerns were, how do they obtain the data from the outside organizations that are helping them meet the criteria of a CCPHC? For example, a couple of the quality measures are measuring body mass index or keeping detail of blood pressure. So those might be some that if you were historically a behavioral health clinic, now you have to either add that into your typical assessment as somebody comes in, or you need to reach out to whoever is providing the general practitioner type role for those individuals and share data. So some of the concerns were, how do we share data with these other providers? How do we require them to obtain and provide that information on a timely basis? So there again, more data and a lot of data to analyze. Something else I've seen in relation to this though, I've seen it at a CCBHCs where they actually have one or two individuals who are just data analysts. So because of the amount of data measurement requirements, they actually had to hire somebody specifically just to handle all the data that has to be provided out. I think that's a great point. It's like, there's so much out there and it's not all in one spot. How do you gather everything to actually report back? And I don't think that's just a CCBHC issue. I think that's a sector issue. Right now, many of our reimbursements, because they're government grants or cost reimbursement, we're on the march to value-based care. So every organization really needs to look at their metrics and their quality metrics and how much does it cost for a service so that they're reimbursed at the right rate. Absolutely, and it also ties into funding. So in relation to value-based care, because the CCB, and I'm sorry, I always focus on CCBHC, but that's where a lot of my experience is. But because the CCBHC model for the ones who are under the demonstration project is only for the Medicaid eligible individuals, a lot of the CCBHCs should be trying, or maybe have tried already, but they should be trying to negotiate their contract with their um, commercial insurance in order to get the rates that would cover their model. So again, keeping track of all that data in order to negotiate the rates is key. So when you think about it, it's, you have to know what quality metrics matter. You have to determine how to get that data. You have to do a gap analysis on what you have now to what you need to do to get the data and then get the systems in place to stop the gap. And that's was a really easy thing for me just to say, I mean, that that could be a process. A lot of things are easier said than done, right? As, as we all know. And 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 I, I think one thing I, I like what you said, Krista, earlier, I, I think you said that, you know, providers need to focus on what matters, right? Focus on those quality measures that matter and figure out how they can best measure them. I, I will tell you, this is, as you said, this is not just a CCBHC issue. It's not just a behavioral health issue. It's a healthcare industry issue, right? Measuring uh, quality of care, focusing on those quality measures that do matter. So I have to imagine that we're seeing a lot of investment. You mentioned IT, Krista, right? So we're seeing a lot of investment in, in technology in the behavioral health sector. 
among our client base anyway. And I think that they have to make those investments. But a lot of behavioral health providers, you know, might be a little reluctant or just may not, aren't, aren't a position to make those investments because they don't have the funding to make the necessary investments to do what they need to do. So can you talk a little bit about investment in technology, funding, and, and how those two maybe tie together? So we're an interesting business model because many times there's three different revenue sources. We have the third-party insurers that pay. We have government grants that are cost reimbursement that no, won't normally give you a profit to make an investment. And then we have contributions. So unless there's a way where you can actually increase the rate that you're being paid, such as what Melissa talked about on the CCBHCs, either you're making that up on contributions or you're not making those investments. So in order for the behavioral health industry to make it to the next level, we need to make those investments, but we're really constrained right now by funding. A couple of things along those lines. The president's federal budget does offer some hope there. However, in an election year for midterms coming up later this year, that can become a political issue and, and the funding may not be as robust as is currently being discussed or as, as much as the president wants. And to combine that with, they need that funding now. Uh, if, if you need a, a CCBHC, you, you need to be tracking that data analysis now. So one way you can potentially get additional funding is through outside private equity investment. It's a growing trend, not just in behavior, behavioral health sectors, but healthcare overall, as well as several other sectors. The private equity investment deals over the past 10 years have increased steadily with the higher volume of larger deals. So just a couple of years ago, 80% of the thousands of private equity deals were over a billion dollars in size, meaning that these are not small little tuck-ins or, or small transactions so that the private equity industry is well aware of the attention that Congress and the president is giving it and is doubling down on its investment in that industry to the tune of billions of dollars. So that is one way for behavioral health providers to get that additional funding to invest in technology, to invest in housing for their workforce, to invest in other programmatic improvements that they can potentially offer and put a dent in some of the country's behavioral health crisis. The downside to that is in a not-for-profit situation, it might be a little more complicated to access that funding. In a for-profit behavioral health provider, the volume of those deals is, is the majority of the private equity transactions that we've we've been seeing. But not-for-profits do still have a way to, to access that funding as well through a series of semi-complicated methods. They, they can access that funding by becoming a foundation to maintain their mission and ma maintain the, this charitable status of their donations and protect that mission that has been built over time on the not-for-profit side. They can become a foundation of the for-profit entity who then can access that private equity funding and invest further invest in their programs. So that that is a growing trend again not not just in behavioral health but in healthcare in general. Substance abuse, mental health and autism are the top 3 areas that have have done deals over the past few years that we've seen again billions of dollars flow into the industry to help meet that unmet need. 
So there's there's still a ways to go, and that's another reason why that private equity investors are, see this as such such an attractive market for them to to put their money. Yeah. So, so Mike, when you when you talk about accessing private equity investment, really what we're talking about here is we're talking about selling the business to private equity investors. I mean that that right. Yes. Just to be clear, right? We're talking about selling the business, and that's why in the not for profit world, if a not for profit were to sell their business right to a private equity uh, investor you're, that's where you talked about creating the foundation maybe with the proceeds where where they can maybe develop the foundation if you will can develop other programs connected potentially connected to the the prior behavioral health organization that they were running that's now private equity owned correct correct yes yes this, this is this is a, a buy sell transaction yeah. okay. so that that may not be the most attractive to some to some organizations but certainly will give you the funding needed to to enhance your your mission and, and potentially achieve your goals if you find the right match and that's what you know private equity investors generally do as you said there's a lot of private equity activity across the whole healthcare continuum and they bring resources right and they they will invest in infrastructure the infrastructure that's needed you know to to deal with all of the the current and and future issues that that providers need to be Need to be focused on and, and certainly measuring quality is, is one of those issues and healthcare providers do struggle with it right it, it you know again that balance between investing in the, in the technology they need and funding it and listen there's other capital requirements too it's not just all about it right you know there, there's some physical plant right that behavioral health or other healthcare providers have that they need to maintain and invest in on an annual basis so so a lot of challenges really on the overall capital front, but but Krista, going back to something you made reference to, you talked about value-based care. It's coming, you know, it, it's well, it's here, right? It continues to evolve, uh, but I think it's going to intensify m moving forward. Or the level of value-based care participation by behavioral health care and other providers is going to continue to increase. And you know, I recently did a podcast episode with David Gregory, you know, one of our our healthcare consulting leaders, and David talked about some of the business capabilities necessary to reinforce and activate value-based care programs and these would be true for for just about any any healthcare provider behavioral health in, included and just some of these business capabilities were care coordination and organizational collaboration right so we we talked about these ccbhc's being collaborators conveners that business model lends itself to to value-based care payer engagement you know engaging with the funding sources right that 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 needs to happen patient engagement and I'm going to come back to patient engagement in a second. And then we talk about physician and staff engagement, uh, provider analytics, data, being able to analyze data, uh, you know, effectively, information sharing and monitoring. Uh, and then we talk about managed care and the contracting approach with, with some of the payers. But, but coming back to patient engagement, and Melissa, I'm going to come over to you here and, and talk a little bit about the focus on prevention, right? So a lot of the dollars today for behavioral health care are used to fund the rehab treatments, the, the treatments after a crisis has taken place. There's there's not a lot today, at least my understanding is, there's not a lot today on the prevention side of things happening. And quite frankly, we in this country, again, from an overall healthcare perspective, we're not very good patients, generally speaking, right? It, it, because does everyone go see their doctor annually for their physical? Do they get their annual blood work done? Do they do, is everybody doing what they need to do, right? And providers can do, they can develop a lot of different programs to try and engage patients more and more as the years go by. But but unless the patients themselves, we have to take ownership, I guess, is my summary here. We have to take ownership in our own health. If we take ownership in our health, that can contribute to overall population health as well. 
But as it relates to prevention, what are you seeing? What are you hearing relative to prevention-related programs and funding? The key is funding for prevention-related programs. Absolutely. There's definitely been a push towards moving from just treatment to, to focusing more on prevention rather than treatment. So successful prevention risk factors decreases risk, risk factors and enhances protective factors. For many health issues, the same conditions increases the risk while other factors can shield people from those problems. So there's significant research out there and there's also some people speaking from experience that have proved that focusing more on prevention will help in reducing the treatment later on. So basically, the all of these models that are up and coming have been focused more on prevention, on the newer models. So such as CCBHC, they are focusing more on prevention, which is why they have all these data metrics that Crystal was talking about earlier, such as looking at your BMI, your blood pressure, things like that. They're all trying to focus on prevention because keeping all of this data together could potentially trigger a flag that would indicate that somebody may be at risk for mental health issues or substance abuse. Not specifically saying that any of these do, but it may, or having several triggers may impact that. So the all of these models that are up and coming, including some of the funding that is available on SAMHSA's website, are focused more on prevention than they are on treatment. So we are seeing that push to turn the model around. And, and I think there's some really inventive things coming. You know, there's talking about having providers in schools. So when they see kids with some of the factors that Melissa's talking about, or maybe, you know, someone in crisis, it can be addressed immediately and not waiting for some event to actually get them into the system. I talked about housing on, on the last episode, but there's, there's a lot of studies about people can't basically start treatment until they have basic needs met, you know, and so until they can have safe housing and be in safe housing and get the right food and get the right sleep, not a lot of the treatment plans that are currently in place will work. So that's part of prevention as well. And so there's different funding sources, the different credits, you know, you can partner with developers to create almost like a neighborhood as part of your treatment plan. So really inventive things that are coming. The folks from the White House who were there were talking more about prevention than crisis. Because the thing is, if somebody walks in the door and they're like, I need help, if they're not seen within 24 hours, 75% of those, according to some studies, will never get care. So what we're doing right now doesn't work. So how do we move down the continuum sooner so we can catch people earlier and get them help? Yeah, interesting, Chris. I mean, what you were re referring to there really are those those social determinants of health, right? And how yeah. how mm -hmm. social determinants of health can can greatly impact, you know, the, you know, healthcare spend and how people are. Do people have the ability to access the care that they need, right? Just given their social determinants, and social determinants. I mean, it, it, it's very that's a very complex issue, right? And and I know a lot of healthcare providers are 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 doing their best to address social determinants, but. Uh, but but there's a lot more work to be done there, and I think most healthcare providers across the country would acknowledge that. So I guess in closing, or as we as we come to our last topic, and and really we could probably talk for another hour or two on on this topic. But you know, on the last podcast episode, I mentioned we you know we talked about workforce issues and workforce issues resulting in elevated costs, both employed labor, contracted labor, you know, benefit programs, et cetera. You know, we talked a bit on this this episode about IT infrastructure, investments that are needed 
for behavioral health organizations and healthcare organizations more broadly to just better manage their business, right? We, we, need, we need to invest. So how do we pay for all of this, Chris? I mean, where, where's, and again, I know we talked about funding on the last episode. You know, we talked a little bit about it already here, but that is probably the most important issue. Certainly workforce issues, a bunch of the other issues impacting cost or spend. But, but that top line revenue, where, where's it going to come from? Well, since I've been in the sector, we've been talking about parity. And if you look back in 2008, there was the Parity and Addiction Equity Act. And it's a federal law that's really trying to say, hey, if you go in and break your leg, you're going to be paid fairly. If you're having a mental health crisis, you're going to be paid that same way from third party providers. And it isn't always happening. And so President Biden in his 2023 budget actually included 125 million for parity enforcement for states. And so there's some hope that maybe there finally will be parity. And so that would increase payments to the behavioral health providers as they're creating their services. So we don't have to, as I said, cobble, you know, contributions and government grants and then third party payers and what they're paying for the services that really it's it's a fair payment for the treatment that we're providing. And I think what makes it hard is there's nothing tangible. You know, when you go in and you get your arm fixed when it's broken, you can see your arm straight again. When you're in mental health crisis, there's nothing tangible to see as you're getting that treatment. So it makes it harder for people to understand. So I, I think these kind of actions are going to help our industry if we can get those payments up more. Yeah, no, and I, and I know that's something that, you know, again, on the last last podcast episode, excuse me, Mike talked about the focus at the federal level, the attention that be, the behavioral health sector is is receiving at this stage of the game. Mike? Yeah, and I think to build off of that a little bit, like Krista mentioned, there are lobbyist efforts currently going on in, in Congress advocating for for the for that parity uh, for the reasons Krista described. There, there's different approaches that they're taking. And again, it could become a political issue as as we get closer to the elections in November. But they are hopeful that both sides of of Congress are actively discussing this in in several different bills. It's not just a one long shot bill that that is out there. So there there are multiple uh, potential bills that if any of them achieve in, in some form, the behavioral health industry could and will see additional enhanced funding streams. Will it be the the best case scenario that that Medicare will cover everything the same as a primary care medical coverage? That's the hope. I think there are people working toward that. The advocates are a little skeptical that that much movement will happen in this this current administration, but I, I do think that there is is hope for expanded rates, either on the PPS side, the extension of some of the CCBH models, which sunset uh, in about a year and a half in September 2023, um, unless they're extended. So there there is some paths toward enhanced funding streams for for behavioral health. So stay tuned for for developments there. So Mark, that answers your question. How would we pay for all this with all of those things we just talked about? Yes. Yep. Yep. Got it. Let's just let's just hope that you know behavioral health continues to stay you know on the radar at, at the federal level and and that the attention that's being paid to it now uh, to these providers now it you know continues moving forward because as we all know you know behavioral health providers are a critically important part of the overall healthcare continuum in all of our communities across this country and and we need to make sure that the 
that the funding is there so that their businesses can sustain themselves and that they are in a position to provide the necessary care. Uh, again, high demand, demand continues to increase for, for, for behavioral health. So let's just hope that continues. So, so I want to thank you guys. And, and I'm already looking forward to, to NACON 2023 and the episodes that we'll, we'll record next year. I, probably a lot of these same issues will be talked about in next year's conference, and then there'll be other issues to pile on to, to these current issues. So, so I appreciate you guys sharing your thoughts about the conference with our, with our audience today. And I want to thank our listeners for joining this podcast. And if you found this episode useful and would like to listen to more episodes about hot topics in the healthcare industry, please subscribe to our Healthy Outcomes podcast or learn more by visiting us at bakertilly.com. Thank you for listening. To receive notifications when new episodes are available, please subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts. For additional resources, check out bakertilly.com.